So first, right. Okay. Uh, first of all, everybody, uh, nice to see you all. Um, and, um, you know, as we're going forward with these uh, classes, we will uh, have the opportunity, I will have the opportunity to understand what the best way to present the material to you is. Um, so, for example, today I will be sharing the screen um, more than I've done in the previous classes because people have expressed uh, the idea that it would be easier to follow if it, w if it was all on screen. So I will do that shortly. Um, let me just, you know, quickly take you to where we ended last week. Um, uh, last week, we well, uh, just uh, again, just to give a little context, we have a textual problem in the Mishnah. Um, the textual problem is and we discuss a textual problem whatever solution we offer to that problem has two ramifications it has an interpretive uh, ramification how do we interpret the Mishnah and it has a halachic ramification and you have to keep those two things separate in your mind so that you understand the discussion that is taking place in the Talmud so we, we saw the approach of Rabbi Abhu we saw how he interprets that passage from an interpretive perspective. And we also looked at the halachic consequences um, of that. And the halachic consequences, and at this point, I'm going to do a, um, a screen share. And I have about 75 different screens open, so I have to find the correct one. I hope I actually got the correct one. I think this is it, minus this. Um, at this point, you should all be seeing a colorful... Um, one second. Um, a colorful map of the Sugiyat. If somebody can just confirm. Yes. Okay. Good. Yeah, I see the yeah. confirmation. Excellent. So, um, so basically, Rabbi Abhu's interpretive um, perspective was that the Mishnah excludes Hodaot Vahalvaot. Hodaot Vahalvaot is not included in the purview of the Mishnah. So that's the interpretive part. And the halachic part is, well, uh, why, why would we exclude hoda'ot v'halva'ot from the Mishnah? Um, and the answer was, mumchim, to teach us that with respect to hoda'ot v'halva'ot, we do not require expert judges. Uh, this is akin to, um, you have in many countries uh, arbitration laws, and under arbitration, oftentimes you don't need to have a judge. You can have just, you know, um, people who are familiar with the business, right? People who are who have a particular expertise. It's not necessarily a legal expertise, right? So the point of Rabbi Abu is to teach us that in the case of Hoda'ot v'halva'ot, in the case of loans, um, admissions that one owes money, one does not need to have an expert judge adjudicate um, the dispute, but rather the dispute could be adjudicated through non-expert judges. That was the legal conclusion of Rabbi Abhu. And where we left off was, um, well, there was a rhetorical part of that legal conclusion, and then there is um, the source. So let's just start with the rhetoric, because I don't believe I explained it so well. Um, so I'm just going to look at the Maikasavar. Okay, again, I just want to make sure that I wrap this up properly, uh, and I'm going to read for you um, the highlighted section in the Gemara, Maikasavar. What is um, Rabbi Abhu's um, um, explanation of the relevant verses? And we'll, we'll, we'll see what that means. 
If it is Rabbi Abu's position that the different perashiyot in the Torah, and I will soon uh, share the screen with you and show you what that is, um, if the different perashiyot in the Torah need to be um, juxtaposed um, so that um, the rules from one perasha apply to the other perasha, in that case, we should require then in the case of Halva'ot, there will be expert judges. On the other hand, the Abu's position is that the Perashiyot in the Torah are separate. Then why do you require three judges? So let me just show that to you in the, in the um, let me just show it to you in the Pesukim. I don't think it was on the resource sheet, but nevertheless, I will, um, I will share with the verses with you now. Um, right now, do you see a different screen? Good, perfect. So that also worked. Okay. Um, so here it is. Um, so you have here the pesukim. You see um, the different pesukim that deal with the shomer and what happens uh, if the bailment was uh, robbed, for example, right? So you see here in this uh, in these pesukim, you see the word Elohim three times, right? So the first time is That's number one, right? Okay, and he's going to testify before the judge um, that he has, um, in fact, fulfilled his obligations um, as a daily. Um, he has certain obligations in Jewish law. He is going to testify before the judge. It's actually going to make a shavuot hashomerim. There's a special shavuot for the daily. Um, where he has, where he states, I have fulfilled my obligations. Okay? And then it says, Ad ha-elohim There's a general statement that says that in all such cases, in any cases where there's a bailment of this nature, um, they, the uh, dispute would be resolved again, the word Elohim. And finally, Asher yarshi'un Elohim. So that's three times. So in the case of this perasha, and you see that this is one perasha, you see the Samech here, this is the end of the previous perasha, so here we have this perasha, this is all one perasha. And in this perasha, we have the concept of three judges, and we have the concept of expert judges, because the word Elohim, um, and, and perhaps I should um, explain this, um, you know, in the, in the verse in perasha um, Bereshit, the Nachash is trying to seduce uh, Hava, and he says, So Elohim means a person with authority. You know, not just a regular person, but a person who has authority, a politician, a political leader, right? So the Nachash is trying to seduce Hava and saying, you will have this authority, you will be prominent. So the word Elohim doesn't just mean a person who has, um, who is a judge, but it is a, a judge who has the authority to act as a judge, right? So that's why. So it appears three times. So you notice there's two separate lessons here. The two separate lessons are, number one, you need to adjudicate this particular dispute, uh, in the case of a bailment, with three judges, a tribunal. And number two, the judges must be expert judges. And the word Elohim implies a certain level of expertise. Okay, so those laws are learned in this parasha. If you go now further down, we have more dealing again with the bailment, the different type of bailment, right? And then you have a few other laws, but finally, come with me to Pasuk Kaf Dalet. 
Ami. There you have halvaot, black on white, lending money to a person who requires money. And the theory, the rhetorical theory here is that there is a juxtaposition between these various pesukim because there are certain rules that we learn from the laws of bailment going all the way down, all the way down to the laws of halvaot, right? And what is the laws that we learn from the laws of the bailment? Well, we said that you require three judges because Rabbi Abu acknowledged that you require three judges. Right, um, and, and and the question is a very simple one. Well, if you require uh, three judges, then you should also require expert um, uh, expert judges, right? Because there are there is Eidut Perashiot or there is not Eidut Perashiot. So that that was a question that we got to last week. I just want to make sure that it was clear what's happening here. It's a purely rhetorical um, um, discussion, and I don't mean to minimize rhetoric, um, but rhetoric is important in rabbinic thinking. And how you express ideas is important in rabbinic thinking. So there has to be a correlation between the law and the pesukim. And it can't be a sloppy correlation, right? So saying expert judges, uh, no. Three judges, yes, would be very sloppy, actually. So we're finally uh, getting to the point. The high, the la ba'enan mishum, I'm sorry. Therefore, really, according to the verses, from a purely rhetorical point of view, from, a, uh, from the perspective of the verses, and interpreting the verses, you would require mumkim, right? You would require expert judges. The same way you require three judges, you require expert judges. And the The reason we don't require mumkim is because of Rabbi Okay, let me ask does anybody, um, and, and then it says, um, the, and I'm, now we're going to have a part C of this first section, which deals with Rabbi Abu, right? This is Roman numeral one, part one, Rabbi Abu's approach to the textual problem. The last, let's say, remaining unknown, we understand how Rabbi Abu interprets the Mishnah, we understand the halakhic consequences of that interpretation, we understand the rhetorical connection between the halakha and the Pesukim, so all that's done. The final question, what's the real reason? Okay, what's the real reason that Rabbi Abhu decides that you don't need expert judges? There must be a reason for that, right? It's not the Pesukim, obviously, right? That was just rhetoric. There's no reason in the Mishnah to require the interpretation of Rabbi Abhu. So what, you know, what is it, a, you know, what is it about a Hoda'ot v'halva'ot that says, well, you know, yeah, we, we should require, normally we should require uh, expert judges, but in this case we won't require. And the answer is, Mishum de Chanina. What do the words Mishum de Chanina mean? What does it mean, Mishum it should have been, you know, if you're saying that it's, you know, that, well, normally you would say, Mishum I'm not sure if anybody has Safaria. Does anybody have Safaria? Can somebody read to me what Safaria says? I'm just curious if you have that, if anybody has it. I'll take a sip of my water in the meantime. I can open it also myself. Um, just, again, I'm just doing this out of curiosity. Let's see if I can, uh, somebody finds it before me. You're welcome to chime in. I'm opening it up. Mishum Let's see. We are in Bet Amud Bet. 
We'll open up the English. Here we go. Language. Okay. So now, let's see what Mishum Derevi Chanina. Okay. No. I think it says due to the reasoning. Ah, due to the reasoning of the Bichanina. I like that. I, I like that interpretation. I like when he says due to the reasoning of the Bichanina. Um, and I will take you at your word. Um, right, right. It's due to the reasoning of Rabbi Hanina. Okay. As Rabbi Hanina says. All right. Now, let's actually look at the words of Rabbi Hanina. Okay. So what's Rabbi Hanina going to be talking about? Rabbi Hanina is going to be talking about expert witnesses. Okay. Let's, let's read it. Here it is. Okay. So this is part C. Right. This is part here where we have part Roman numeral one. This is the last of three parts of Rabbi Abhu's interpretation of the Mishnah. What's the reason that we have this concept of Mumkin doesn't apply for the That's where we're at now. And the answer is Rabbi Hanina. So let's read it. The Amar Rabbi Hanina. Devar Torah Echad Dine Mamonot Vechad Nefashot Bidrisha Hakira. Rabbi Hanina says that from the perspective of biblical law, all cases, it doesn't matter whether it's cases involving Dine Mamonot, whether it's cases involving Dine Nefashot, you have to have the proper interrogation of the witnesses. And last week we read in Harambam what that interrogation, um, uh, how that interrogation begins with seven questions. Okay, I, we read that last week. So all cases have to have it. So that's a very clear rule of Rabbi Hanina. All right. And what's the reason for that rule? Okay. So part, you know, subpart two. The policy consideration behind Rabbi Hanina's allowance of the use of non-expert witnesses. So exactly, Rabbi Hanina says that from the perspective of, of, of biblical law, you need... Um, you need to have expert witnesses. But there is a policy consideration where he says, no, we will not use expert witnesses. I'm going to read to you the Gersa as it appears in the Vilma Shas. You notice I skipped that big bet. That big bet I put there based on the manuscript. I'm skipping it for now. What's the reason that in the case of Dine Mamonot, you don't need to have interrogation? Because we do not want to impede the ability of people who need to borrow money from borrowing money. We don't want to lock the door on those people. Okay, a couple of questions. The, the Gemara is faulty. The Gemara says, Why do we say that Dine Mamonot doesn't require Dirishava Hakira? That's just incorrect. It's not correct to say for example, in the case of Shomerim, in the case of Shorsh Nagdahi Tapara, in all these cases you required um, So the way the Gemara is phrased currently is highly problematic. Okay, so let's start with that. So the correct side is there are some cases in Dine Mamonot where you don't need to have Derisha Bachakira. Not all cases. You can't make a general statement. It's actually, 
it's actually a very specific situation, and the specific situation is um, Okay, very good. So now we understand what the Bichanina said. He said, again, biblical law, you require Derishava um, Hakira, um, but as a matter of rabbinic policy, they excluded they excluded some cases of dinema monot from the requirement of derishava hakira in this because we don't want to prevent people, people who need money, from borrowing money. Okay, what's the problem with this entire section C? Okay, well, let me ask the question in another way. We just said that the reason we do not require expert witnesses is because of Rabbi Hanina. Does the Bichani not say a word about expert witnesses? I mean, look at it for yourself. I'll give you a moment. Please find me the word mumchin, and, and I will be happy to, uh, you know, I will be happy to stand corrected. But the word mumchin doesn't appear there, actually. Okay. So what does it mean that oh, because of the Bichani and that's why the case, that's why it's so important. It says, Mishum de It doesn't say, De'amar Usually in the Gemara, when you want to support yourself, in this case, uh, this Rabbi Hanina is a Tanna. He was um, a Talmud of, um, or rather he was a colleague of, uh, or a senior Talmud of Rabbeinu Kadosh. So it would say, De'amar Rabbi as Rabbi Hanina stated, it doesn't say De'amar Rabbi Hanina. Why doesn't it say De'amar Rabbi Hanina here? It says Mishum De Rabbi Hanina. What's the difference between Mishum De Rabbi Hanina and De'amar Rabbi Hanina? And, and, it's, and it's, it's very important because without that, you simply can't understand the text of the Talmud. Rabbi Hanina says nothing about um, expert witnesses, uh, expert, um, um, sorry, uh, judges. He doesn't say a word about that. Uh, Rabbi Hanina establishes that the correlation between Dinei Mamanov and Dinei Nefashot is only partial. Correct. He establishes that. And he also establishes that there's a particular policy concern. The policy concern is we want people lending money to poor individuals who need money. Because that's Misvata said the Oraita. Misvata said the Oraita that if a poor person requires you know, a loan, we, we are obligated to help that person and give them the loan. So Rabbi Hanina doesn't say a word about Mumkim. Rabbi Hanina points out to a problem, and Rabbi Hanina addresses the problem in a certain way. How does he address the problem? By saying, well, normally in all um, cases of Dinei Nefashot and Dinei Mamonot, you have Derishava Hakira. In order to make life easier for the person lending the money to the, to the poor, because the person lending the money doesn't want to you know, later on find out that the, A, the poor person might not pay him back, and B, he's going to come before the court, and they're going to start asking him questions. You know, what, uh, what year was it? What month was it? What week was it? What year of the Shemitah was it? Uh, where were you? And, and, you know, no, nobody wants to be interrogated by judges, especially not, under, you know, the judges, uh, the Dayanim back then were very scary. Um, and frankly, they were, they were very scary. Nobody wants to be in front of these Dayanim being asked all these questions. So Rabbi Chanina says, you know, I want to make life easy. I want to persuade the potential lenders that they're not going to be subjected to this type of scrutiny. And therefore, although as a matter of biblical law, there is the requirement of Derishabah Hakira in all cases, 
including Dinemamonot. In this case, I'm gonna I'm gonna suspend that. We'll suspend it. There's no Dirishaba Hakina in the case of loans, and like this, the person lending the money knows that he's gonna be able to recoup the money, doesn't have to stand in front of the judges and, and be terrified. Um so when it says Mishum Dirvi Khalina means Rabbi Abhu is alluding to the same concern that Rabbi Khanina is alluding to. It's not a question of reasoning, by the way. Reasoning, you know, it's, it's not a question of reasoning. It's a, it's a particular policy concern. And he's thinking, you know, you remember that I said Rabbi Abhu was a high-level government official in the Jewish people. He was a representative of the Jewish people to the Romans. He was very involved in commerce and business. And he knew. He knew what was happening. In that position, he was fully, he wasn't, you know, um, a person who was, you know, in the yeshiva and had no idea of what's happening outside in the world. He was a person who was constantly visiting the Romans and, um, and negotiating deals with them and very um, in, involved in commerce and business. And therefore, he understood the concerns of the upper class who had money to lend to the poor. And he tells us this Mishnah, is actually predicated based upon the fact that Rabbeinu HaKadosh, who of course, Rabbi Abu is not the one who um, authored the Mishnah. Rabbi Abu is one of the, uh, you know, star Talmidim, but he didn't author the Mishnah. You all understand that, right? So Rabbi Abu is saying, it's clear to me that Rabbeinu HaKadosh, in, um, in formulating the Mishnah as he did, meant to make life easier for the lenders, meant to induce or facilitate loans from people who have money to people who don't have money. And how did he do this? By excluding the requirement, not of Derishaba Hakira, Rabbi Hanina did that, by excluding the requirement of expert judges. Again, you're now going, you know, before a judge and there's no Derishaba Hakira. If he's a colleague, if he's a businessman, you feel more comfortable. If he's a you know a huge Dayan, you're you're a little you know you're a little scared. You're a little scared of the Dayan, and and you again you don't want to be subjected to that. You just as soon not make the loan. You don't need to make the loan. It's not doing you any. I mean, it's Misfata said the When I say it's not doing you any good, I mean from a Olam uh, Hazeh perspective, you don't feel it's doing you any good. You know, we have a um, um, an expression in our Syrian Arabic, Wajaraz. Wajaraz means there's certain problems in life we just don't need. So you know they don't, they don't want the Wajaraz of having to go to court and getting the poor person to pay back the loan that he made him. So I just assume now make the loan if I have to go down before Dayanim. So Mishum Derebi Chanina is the key term. Umatam Amru Bedine Again, without the Beth, you just, the, it, the sentence doesn't make sense. Okay? All right. And then finally, part three of Elucidation, elucidating the Bichaninas position, which is the basis for or analogous to what Rabbi Abu did, is um, should we then say, if this is the case, that in fact we use um, non-expert witnesses in the case of loans, disputes involving loans, perhaps if the judges make a mistake in the ruling, they shouldn't have to pay, right? Um, and the answer, because because they're non-expert judges, let me just read to you the resource. I'm going to open up now the resource sheet. Give me a moment, please. Um, I remember opening it. Here it is. Let's see. Resource sheet. Source sheet. Okay. So you should now all be able to see the source sheet. 
And um, this particular rule, it defines what the meaning of the word Elohim is, right? I, I didn't look at it before, but I remember I did discuss, discuss with, you, with you all that Elohim is a, is a judge who has a particular authority or who has semichah. So you may want to look at that after the class. Um, that's why I put it there. And also semichah dorot. Okay, that's again who the Elohim are. Um, you see, here it's explicit. En karui Elohim ela betin because they're the ones who have the real authority. They have the they have authority well beyond the authority of regular dayanim who are not uh, Elohim. All right, and here is the um, here is the halacha I want to read to you now. This is also in the Chosan Edrim, and it is as follows: Misha enora uiladun the pene. A person is not a person who knows the law, and therefore he is not worthy of being a judge. Um, there's, um, there's a Yerushalmi in, um, in Bikurim um, where uh, they discuss people who were appointed as judges, even though they were not worthy of being appointed as judges. So the Yerushalmi says there, um, so because the judges used to wear talitot and it says if you have a person who's not worthy of being a judge and he's appointed as a judge nevertheless and he's wearing this talit symbolizing that he's a judge so it says uh, this is I think in Perekim uh, of Bikurim and Yerushalmi where it goes into Dayanim She'enam Agunim so going back to this law if the Resh Galuta, for example, gives him the permission to uh, be a judge, he is, he, he, is, he is not a worthy judge. The fact that he was appointed, this is such an important law, by the way. The fact that he was appointed as a judge doesn't end it. You know, you know we, we want leaders who are competent. You know, I mean, I'll give you an example. You know, well, well, there's, there's many governments um, where they appoint people based on, oh, you, you supported me, she supported me, you supported him, and he supported me. You know, in, in Judaism, that is not the proper uh, um, measure through which to appoint people to political positions. And if a person is incompetent, then, you know, he may have been appointed, but he's not recognized as actually having authority to do anything within the context of that. This is an amazing law, by the way. I would, I would take this, frame it, and put it in all our offices, and perhaps we would have better political uh, leaders, um, because it really is an incredible law. I mean, imagine imagine we follow this today. You know, um, you, you have to be competent. You actually have to deserve the position you're in. Okay, but going on, I didn't bring it to preach. I did bring it because of the following law, and it's as follows. Kol dayan shedan Right? So if a person um, if a person made a mistake and he, you know, he was a judge and he made a mistake, and now, for example, he caused somebody to pay money, right? So the answer is, if he himself, if the person himself was not worthy, was not worthy of being the judge, right? He has to, um, he has to pay. He has to pay. Why were you, it's kind of a penalty. Why, why did you allow yourself to be a judge? You, you weren't qualified to be a judge. And you'll, you'll read these halachot later. I don't, I, don't, I don't find it necessary to go through the halachot with you. You can all look at these halachot yourselves. But the point being that the Gemara is asking a very intelligent question. Well, if you're telling me that these non-qualified people will now be judges in the case of um, 
um, halvaot, disputes involving um, loans, why should we penalize them? If they make a mistake, they shouldn't be penalized. That's the question that the Gemara is asking. And let's go now back to the Gemara and we'll read it. And now you understand. Since these non-qualified or non-expert judges, let's call them, are being appointed, notwithstanding the fact that they're non-expert as a matter of policy, then perhaps they shouldn't be penalized. And the answer is no, because that would, that would run counter to the very policy that allowed us to appoint them. Because if the, if the people, the creditors, the lenders know that the judges are not just non-expert judges, but the judges can be sloppy judges. Now the guys say, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lend money. Would I need the sloppy person now deciding that the debtor, my debtor doesn't have to pay me back? Well, no, I'm not gonna lend money. But if you say, wait, wait, hold on. It's true, they're non-expert judges, but if they make a mistake, right? If they make a mistake, you can sue the judge now. Oh, I feel much better about that. Okay, so that's that policy. So that's this, so this is, this is the end of Roman numeral one. This is the end of the Biyahu. We see a very clear explanation of the Mishnah. We see a very clear halachic derivative from that explanation. We see a very clear policy. The policy is the policy of the Bichanina. We want to make sure that lenders lend money to poor people. Rabbi Abhu was following up on that policy. It makes sense because Rabbi Hanina was a senior Talmud of Rabbeinu HaKadosh. And of course, if Rabbi Hanina is expressing this, we can understand how Rabbeinu HaKadosh in formulating the Mishnah was concerned with the same issue that Rabbi Hanina was concerned with. So that's, that's the end. This is, we just did an entire class in Caesarea. The first part of the, of the sugya, that's the class that took place in Caesarea. Everybody was happy. They all understand the sugya. They all understand the Mishnah. And they go on to the next subject. But as you know, the Talmud is a collection of classes from different uh, yeshivot. And now we're going to look at a different approach. We're going to look at the approach of yeshivat fombedita. It's normally pronounced humbedita. My father used to pronounce it fombedita. Um, at the mouth, literally, it's a from bedita. means at the mouth of the river, because that's where it was, uh, the yeshiva. And uh, we're now going to do that. So um, let's go to part two. Let's go to part two. And uh, okay, part two is going to be the approach taken in yeshiva from bedita, and it has three subparts, right? The first subpart is A, the Academy of Mechazah rejects Rabbi Abu for textual consideration. That's part one. Or part B. Um, I'm sorry, part A. Part B is the interpretation of the Mishnah. So Rabbi is going to offer, so he's going to reject it. The Yeshiva is going to reject Rabbi Abu and it's going to say why. Then Rabbi will offer a different interpretation to the Mishnah. And we're going to see what the compelling force is for Shemuel's interpretation of the Mishnah. So let's read. First, I'm going to read to you the Vilna Shas, which is this cross outline. I will point out what the uh, difficulties are in understanding the Vilna Shas. And... Um, then I will read to you what the Kitbeyat said, because I see the Kitbeyat, I believe that the, um, 
גרסה נקטיאב איזה סופריור גרסה. סופר סצבי לגן דבר משאס. יא אחי, תרתק קטנה, דיני ממונות בשלושה. בשלושה הדייתות. גזלות וחבלות בשלושה מומחים. That's what the Vilma Shas says. Let me just one second. Make sure I didn't forget anything. I apologize. Okay. Right. All right, here we go. So again, if we are going to accept the um, explanation or the interpretation of Rabbi Avhu, then the Mishnah actually um, uh, has two separate uh, clauses. בשלושה מומחים. It should, it should read, דיני ממונות בשלושה הדיוטות. Right, דיני ממונות, of course, referring to הודעות והלוואות, because according to the Yavu, it's הודעות והלוואות, it's שלושה הדיוטות. גזלות וחבלות בשלושה מומחים, and גזלות וחבלות is with three מומחים. ועוד שלושה, שלושה למעלי, and furthermore, why do I need to repeat the word three, three? So again, it says, Dine Mamonot Bishlosha, that's one time. Gezelot Bachavalot Bishlosha, that's two times. I, I, I'm not sure, you know, I, I don't want to be unfair to the Gersal, the Vilma Shas, but frankly, I, I have a, I'm having a hard time trying to explain it properly. And it's not because I'm prejudiced or I'm trying to, you know, support the Kitzbeyad. I'm just going to read it again with you, and if anybody thinks they can explain it better than I can, please do. I don't mean that as a challenge or as, you know, you know, I, 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 I sincerely am trying to understand this Kirsa. So, if we are to accept the interpretation of the Biyavu, the Mishnah actually has two separate things. דיני ממונות should be adjudicated in שלושה הדיוטות. When it says דיני ממונות בשלושה, it means בשלושה הדיוטות. גזלות וחבלות בשלושה means בשלושה מומחים. So I think what it means to say is that it should have added the words הדיוטות או מומחים. ועוד שלושה שלושה למני. Why repeat the word שלושה שלושה? But I don't understand the second question. The reason you need to repeat the word שלושה שלושה twice is because in one case it's hediotot, um, and in the other case it's mumkim. So again, I don't, you know, I'll, just anybody want to try to explain this better than I did? I mean, don't be embarrassed. So honestly, again, I'm, and, and again, maybe there is a better explanation of the, of the Vilma Shas. I'm sure there is. I just don't understand it intuitively. Okay, so I'll take that as, let's look at the Kitveyad. If the Mishnah, Because you remember how Rabbi Yahu interpreted the Mishnah. He didn't interpret Tarpekatane. Rabbi Yahu says, That is Gezelot Bachavalot. You remember we uh, said that, I think it was uh, two weeks ago? Right. So Rabbi Yahu is saying, When I say, I'm referring specifically to Gezelot Bachavalot. Right? So now let's look at the Gezelot Bachavalot. They're really just, it's, it's, it's almost sweet and enjoyable to read after uh, reading the Gezelot Bachavalot. If we're to accept the Biyavu's interpretation that the Mishnah is actually referring to one case, it's referring to one case, right? <laughs> Why do I have to say case one, 
כזלות החבלות פי שלושה, קייס טו, יש לו סנט, דיני ממונות, כזלות בחבלות פי שלושה. Then I can say, כזלות בחבלות is explaining דיני ממונות. דיני ממונות, that is, כזלות בחבלות. But the minute you say, דיני ממונות פי שלושה. כזלות בחבלות פי שלושה. That suggests that it's two separate cases. So it's really difficult to explain the Mishnah according to the um, explanation of, um, of Rabbi Abu. It really is, meaning Rabbi Abu's explanation from an intextual perspective. The issue here is purely textual. It's not a question of halakha. Remember I told you at the beginning of this class to keep those two issues separate? Put the halakhic issue on the side for now. The first issue, the, the, the issue, the, the problem with Mehozai is if you're going to interpret the Mishnah, you know, the interpretation of the Mishnah has to be a reasonable interpretation that one can read the Mishnah and actually understand the words. So, um, so I'm going to just check for a moment. All right. So, therefore, the Academy of Mehoza formally rejects Rabbi Abhu's interpretation of the Mishnah. That's it. That interpretation is rejected. Part B. Now, and the following interpretation, and just so you understand, uh, this is a summary of the discussion that took place in the yeshiva. So there was uh, probably some back and forth. There was probably, um, you know, some more um, uh, um, elaborate uh, dialogue taking place. This is a summary. And I want to read to you the summary. Um, I'm going to first read to you what the Vilma Shas says. Amarava Tarte Katane. Lava says, actually, Tarte Katane. The Mishnah is saying two things. Okay. Um, that's quite a conclusion. I mean, I, 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 I think we agree with Rava. The Mishnah is saying two things. Uh, meaning, what, what, about when, what the Vilma Shas means to say is, Amar the Mishnah is actually saying, It's another case, it's Bishlosha. Fine. It's a little difficult. I mean, you know, it's, it's just a naked statement. You know, I mean, Rabbi Abu gave us this whole elaborate discussion. You know, you can't just ignore Rabbi Abu. You know, Amar Abba Tarte Katane is really, it's, it's just problematic. I mean, you know, Rabbi Abu is senior to everybody here. You know, Rabbi Abu is, is, is a generation or two earlier. And you can't just, you know, say, oh, no, Amar Abba Tarte Katane. So then, then the dialogue becomes kind of like, no, I say one, I say the Mishnah is Hadak Katane. And, and, and Rabba says Tarte Katane. And Rabbi Abu no, and it just becomes a fight and, you know, incoherent. It, it, from my perspective, the um again the girsad for me is a problematic girsad because it just it doesn't you know just to state a naked position doesn't persuade anyone now let's read to you the girsad according to the geonim because it really makes a lot of sense amarava hachika amar shemuel okay there we go hachika amar shemuel shemuel was a, a very junior talmid of rabenu hakadosh he was the founder of yeshivat nehar de'ah he was senior to Rava. Um, he was, I think, he was also senior to Rabbi Abu. He was. Um, and Hachi Ka'amar Shemuel Tarte Katane. Okay, that's something we can understand. 
Shemuel, who was a Talmud of Rabbeinu HaKadosh, he interpreted the Mishnah differently. He interpreted the Mishnah Tarteh. Namely, Dinei Mamonot refers to case one, and it says Dinei Mamonot Bishlosha, case two, Gezerot Bachavalot Bishlosha. Right? And continuing in the Girsa as a Geonim had it, Dinei Mamonot Bishlosha Hediotot. The first case in the Mishnah, Dinei Mamonot Bishlosha. That means Shelosha Hediotot. Three non-expert judges. And what is included in the purview of that term, the case of loans and admissions. Second clause in the Mishnah, the second clause in the Mishnah is dealing with and there you need three expert judges. And what do we mean by experts? Because until now, nobody, <laughs> nobody bothered to tell us what an expert judge is. Semulchim. The answer is Semulchim. And you remember that we looked at the resource in Harambam. Harambam uh, in Chatzan Edim, we looked at the resource uh, a few minutes ago, where Harambam says that Semulchim, the Eretz Yisrael, are the ones who have the authority. These are the Elohim. Okay, this is it. So we know that the Girsav Harambam somehow corresponds with, um, with what we have before us, of course, with the Geonim. So first of all, first of all, I want to explain to you this part B, the interpretation of the Mishnah Kuntarabah. But you see how it's sometimes essential to be aware of what the Kitbeya say. And, you know, you have to understand that the Vilma Shas is, is, is a product of, you know, um, people um, who um, put together uh, the, the Talmud Bavli as, as perhaps as best as they could, perhaps, or, you know, based on the Kitbiyan, I think of the Venice Shas, and, you know, there was many, many years and many generations transpired between what the Vilna Shas that we have today and the Kitbiyan of the Geonim, right? So that's why it really is so important to look at the Kitbiyan of the Geonim, because oftentimes you, you, you see things that resolve um, a lot of problems. So I want to explain this to you. Amar what does it mean, Achi Ka'amar Shemuel? What does that even mean? Achi Ka'amar Shemuel. What does that mean? Just, just bring me the statement of Shemuel. Why doesn't it say, Amar Abba, Amar Shemuel, Tarte Katane? Okay, that's number one. That's a good question. That's an important question. If you don't understand that question, then you don't understand the Yeah. I have another question to ask. If Shemuel says Tarte Katane, how can it be that a Biabhu, you know, is, is, is you know, saying Chadak Katane? The Mishnah is actually bringing one case, meaning Dinei Mamonot Bishlosha, Gezerot Bachavalot Bishlosha, Gezerot Bachavalot is what's meant by Dinei Mamonot. How, how can you say that? It, it's, a, it's a little problematic. I mean, a Biabhu was a Tamid of Hanan, I get it, but it was, it was a little after Shemuel, so they should have been aware of this interpretation of the Mishnah. Perhaps they weren't, but it is a little problematic, you must admit. Especially given the fact that Shemuel was a Rosh Hashimah Nehavdeya, and he was a Talmud, a junior Talmud of, uh, of Rabbeinu HaKadosh. He was there when they uh, edited the Mishnah. So, uh, so that's very important. Again, when you, when, you, when you study the Gemara, you need to be aware of the technical terminology. Um, if it would have said, Amar Shemuel, Katane, and, you know, whatever the statement is, <laughs> that really would be a big problem for the Biyahu, and the Biyahu would really, it would be almost... 
I don't want to say shameful, but it would be whoops. It would be a whoops moment. He doesn't say Amar Shemuel or Amar Ava Amar Shemuel. He says Achika Amar. Achika Amar, my father, Allah Shalom, taught me. The word Achika Amar is a very technical term in the Gemara, which means I'm going to summarize to you Shemuel's position on the matter, which I gleaned from a class that Shemuel gave. Achika Amar Shemuel doesn't mean he said this explicitly, but I gleaned this conclusion from what Shemuel discussed, right? There is no explicit formulation on the part of Shemuel. And that's so important. And this is why um, um, the Tarte um, Katane wasn't so obvious. It's not a whoops moment for the Biyahu that he didn't know what the Shemuel said. So Hachika Amar Shemuel Tarte Katane Namely, Dinema Morot Bishloshah Yotot and Gezelot Bachabalot Okay, let me ask a question, if I may, and it is as follows. So Shemuel, you know, he interprets the Mishnah, and I think the, the interpretation of Shemuel is, is far more eloquent than the interpretation of Rabbi Abu. So just to go back to the original problem, I'm scrolling up. The original problem was... Doesn't the term, the second clause in the Mishnah, include Dine Mamonot? Rather, isn't it included within Dine Mamonot? And the answer of Shemuel is very simple. No, it's two separate cases. Dine Mamonot, which is Hoda'ot Valva'ot, Bishlosha Hediotot. Gezelot Bahavalot, Bishlosha Mumchim. So that's the answer. So that's how. That's how Rabbi Avu interprets the Mishnah. So I have a question. I'm, uh, excuse me, I, I misspoke. That's how Shemuel interprets the Mishnah. My apologies. That's how Shemuel interprets the Mishnah. And Rabbah's great contribution to us is that Rabbah brings to us the Hachikamar of Shemuel. Okay? So let me ask a question. If this indeed is um, the interpretation of the Mishnah, what is it, the Mishnah? You know, again, I'm just going to pretend like I'm Rabbeinu HaKadosh. And the Mishnah said, you know, um, and I'm thinking, how do I formulate the Mishnah? So let me see. So, Dinema Monot Bishlosha, I would say, Dinema Monot Bishlosha Hediotot, Gezelot Bahavalot Bishlosha Mumchim. Wouldn't that make sense to say, to, to throw in those two words? Right? I mean, if that's the interpretation of the Mishnah, just say so. Dinema Monot Bishlosha Hediotot. That's how Shemuel is, you know, he's telling us this is what it means, and and I agree with him, but, you know, just again, why wouldn't Rabbi Noach just say so? So if you don't mind, let's open up Golden Doves, uh, page 91 to 92, and I will open it on the screen for all of you as well. I believe it's in the in the source sheet somewhere. Yeah, this page ninety one. Yeah, so I'm just going to read to you uh, again. Uh, this is page ninety one of Golden Doves. Economy affects the vocabulary of halachot to the point of imprecision. So when the laws, when the halachot and the Mishnah were formulated by the Ben Kadosh, his number one consideration was economy, to use as few words as possible. 
in order to facilitate memorization, the variation of vocabulary is minimized. Key to understanding our sugya. Um, in order to help people study the Mishnah of the Alpeh, because if you wanted to be a member of the yeshiva, you had to know the Mishnah of the Alpeh and other things of the Alpeh. So in order to facilitate memorization, and Abel Wakadosh, this is what his goal for the Mishnah was to be studied by heart, right? So you have to minimize variation of vocabulary. If a term, or if a term already used could be used again with approximation, it was preferred over a term. I'm going to try to make this a little bigger. I realize that it might be hard for some of you to see this. So it was preferred over a term that could be ex- that could express the same thought with precision, right? So if I have a choice, I'm the Benu Kadosh. I'm editing the Mishnah. I have uh, um, um, uh, two uh, roads before me, or two options before me. Rather, one option is use a few or uh, use um a particular phraseology that is consistent with the previous phraseology but it's not going to be so precise or i can use inconsistent phraseology but it's going to be more precise i will choose option a and not option b this by the way just i just explained to you many of the interpretive difficulties that people have with mishnayot people are like breaking their heads with mishnayot because mishnayot are very difficult to understand one of the great commentaries on the mishnayot uh, the kehati ala vashalom um harab kehati um, he does a fabulous job, but the question always becomes, so why didn't the Mishnah just say so, or, you know, or change the language? And here's your answer, right here. And my father brings a, um, a great example where the Mishnah in Masechet uh, Pesachim actually seems to say something that's imprecise. It's, that's, oh, I don't want to say incorrect, but it almost seems to be incorrect, but it just does so because of the idea of using consistent phraseology. I think this is great for us because it allows us now to understand. Right? Until we get to, you know, the next Mishnah. That's it. That's the answer. Right? The answer is you don't say. That's, that's inconsistent phraseology and that would run afoul of what Rabbein HaKadosh wanted to do, which is to formulate the entire Surah Al-Peh in a manner that would be easy, relatively easy, to remember. All right? So this is one of the great textual um, keys. One of the keys to understanding the text of the Mishnah is that. And that's exactly so. And we know what Shoshah Yodot is. And these referring to the Semuchim. So now we tied up everything, and we found now going to ask um, Shemuel the same question that we asked Rabbi um, What was the compelling force behind this? And the answer is again the same words: Mishum Rabbi Chanina, Mishum Rabbi Chanina. You already understand what that means. It means that the same policy consideration that led to Rabbi Chanina to the idea that we would not have the Rishava Hakira is the policy consideration that Shemuel says that Ben Kadosh had when he interpreted the Mishnah. It makes perfect sense. Shemuel and Rabbi Hanina were somehow um, uh, contemporaneous, right? Shemuel was also a Tanid of Rabbi Kadosh. Rabbi Hanina was a Tanid of Rabbi Kadosh, although uh, Rabbi Hanina, I believe, is more senior than Shemuel. And here we see how the interpretation of the Mishnah according to Shemuel 
is a more elegant interpretation, right? It conforms with Rabbi Hanina perfectly. And what doesn't it do? Let's see if, you, if anybody knows what it doesn't do. What does the interpretation of Rabbah not do? It doesn't change the law, um, right? He agrees with the Rabbi Abu, the Halakha. He agrees. He agrees that in the case of the Nehmamonot, we use Shiloshai uh, Gatot. It doesn't change the law. It was a pure textual issue. Right? And here we see that the Chachamim, they were very concerned with text and the way things, and with phraseology and with linguistics and with diktu. They didn't just sloppily put things together. Right? And even when you interpreted the text of Rabbeinu HaKadosh, you have to understand, and I, I want to say this, you know, oftentimes we study even the text of the Gemara, and we kind of way, we, we instinctively look at the great Steins and he was fantastic, I love him, um, I consider him to be really Gabra Rabba, we look at the great, great, great Rashi, and we don't look at the text, you know, and we kind of like, you know, we're like, we're okay with, you know, what's happening, and we don't realize all these, you know, imperfections in the text as we're reading the text, because we never engage with the text, that's a mistake. Because the Chachamim and the Gemara are all about engaging with the text. So this whole idea that you kind of read this, you got really quickly, you know, and okay, I kind of understand, yeah, I, I think, right, I think that, right, these two rabbis disagree with each other, I think, or do they disagree, or do they agree? Well, you know, it's just not serious. That's not what, I'm, I'm not telling you not to do that, you know, whatever. It's okay. It's just not studying Gemara. That's all I'm saying. It's, you know, to study Gemara, you have to engage with text. Right? So here we had a whole discussion in the yeshiva in Mechozah from Bedita. This is when the yeshiva moved to the city of Mechozah, where Rabbah was. And the whole discussion revolves around one thing. We don't like the interpretation. We agree with the conclusion. The halakhic conclusion is correct. We don't use extra witnesses in the case of loans. Fine. No problem. But don't give me an interpretation of the text that is somehow lacking in any way. I have a much better interpretation of the text. And let's go with that, with that interpretation. Uh, best of all, it comes from Shemuel, who was a, you know, um, junior, junior Tamid of Rabbeinu HaKadosh. So that's that. Um, and um, I think if there's any question, I say it's 420, I don't think it makes sense to go to the third part. Um, uh, the third part is very interesting, um, but I don't think it, it would make sense to go into that. So if anybody has any questions, um, there's about two minutes left, I would be happy to, uh, to entertain them. And I guess I can unshare this now. All right. There's a few questions on the chat. Um, okay. I don't know if do you want me to read them out or, or can you see them? Okay, let me open the chat. All right, here we go. A couple from Rob. Okay, what is the incentive for lay to become judges that they can be held accountable? I mean, well, first of all, it, that probably I think the answer is, um, you know, I don't mean to be um, to sound cynical because I don't I don't believe in cynicism. But what is the incentive for incompetent politicians to take roles that they take? I mean, you know, look at, you know, even our own country, our beloved, maybe not to say, which we love to no end, of course, you know, but, you know, if you look at the resumes of the people, you know, holding the various positions, there's no relationship between what, you know, the Salah Biut did, the head of the health in Israel, and, um, and, and his, you know, his experience, you know, so what is the incentive for that? And what is, you know, so the incentive is, it, I think it's always one thing, I think it's ego. Um, personally, but you know, um, maybe maybe <laughs> maybe other people would have a different thing. I mean, it's great. I'm a judge. I'm a, you know I'm a dayan. People are standing up for me, and you know I have a position of authority, and it you know I can tell my wife and kids that I'm a dayan, so it just feels really good. Um, okay, let me. Do you mean the they got one. paid? Um, 
Well, I mean, yeah, possibly. No, but they were they were generally very wealthy. I mean, the reason people were appointed as Dani was because they're rich. The Reshkaluta would generally want to hire people from his personal club. You know what I'm saying? So they were rich already themselves. So it was more about prestige than about um, than about money. Yeah, so presumably they were rich meant they were not um, bribable. That's why you want them rich to be. I mean, no. Well, okay. I mean, fair enough. You know, but we still want them to be competent. You would agree with that, no? Yes. Right. Um, so right. So so I mean, yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. We don't want them to be bribable. Um, let's just go to the next question. How can Rav, Han, uh, Rav Hanina and Rav override? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, you know, perhaps you can ask me next week, only because it's 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 an important question. If you just want to remember next week to maybe start the class with that question. Because I do want to address it properly, and I'll regel. I'll take understanding that it is not, um, but rather two separate groups. Why does it say binema Oh, nice question. Very good question. I will try to address that next week. Also, if you can ask that, I think that's Ohad. Um, you can ask that. So two people. And what about the question of closing doors? What do, what do you mean by that? I'm not sure I understand that question. Ignacio, would you like to elaborate on that question? Okay, so as things stand, I answered one question. I, I said the other two questions I will um, I will leave for next week. And uh, let me wish you all a good evening, wherever you may be. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Have a good night. We'll see you on Wednesday.